Good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're visiting, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're in a series on uh, several, looking at several uh, chapters in the first part of 2 Corinthians. And the title of our series um, is uh, Trusting the Sufficiency of God. As we've been and are beginning to look at what 2 Corinthians tells us about the fact that God is sufficient for all our needs. We've been looking at it particularly as we are a church in uh, the midst of start of a time of transition and God is sufficient for us in every way we are going to need. This morning we're going to be looking at Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, reading that whole chapter. You'll see that on page 965 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Let me pray for us and then we'll read. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that as we come and open up the Bible and read, we are reading your word spoken to us. Would you, by your spirit, do your work in our hearts? Would you give us eyes that see? Would you unstop our ears that we might hear? Would you thaw out our hearts where needed that we uh, might look to you in hope for our life and for all things? For you are the one who is sufficient and more. You have us in your hands. So we look to you now and pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And again, we began the series last week and mentioned that uh, Paul, as he speaks here, he's writing this letter to the people in Corinth. And he has been challenged by uh, other teachers who have come into Corinth that have looked at Paul and said, no, 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 he's not a real apostle. He's, he's suffered too much. He's not speaking to you the real truth of the Bible. Uh, so he's been challenged and he's addressing again here some of those challenges. So that's what we begin with here at the beginning of uh, chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to, the day, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. Now, I realize... Uh, that you know, most of us have not been reading Second Corinthians chapter three all week, so it's uh, it, it takes a little bit to, to start the engine on this as we jump into the middle of uh, Paul's argument and discussion with um, the Corinthians. And there's a lot here, but there's one thing in particular that I want us to look at in this passage this morning, um, and it really has to do with this question that we uh, can ask, and, and really at some level are continually asking, and it's this: um, what what can really change you? What, what really has power to bring real change in your life? However you would define um, that thing that you think needs changing. Maybe you come this morning as someone who's not following Jesus with the impression that, you know, Christians are the people who think that they no longer have to change anything because, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're Christians and they've got it all together. Well, nothing, in, in one sense, nothing could be further from the truth. Christians are people that have come to know Jesus, and when they come to know Him and His forgiveness in life, it suddenly opens the doors for us to see all kinds of things that desperately need changing, things that go well beyond uh, the things that we would look at as just sort of these minor character flaws, changes we want to see in our life that go well beyond um, losing a few pounds or gaining more respect or accomplishing something in our careers, come to see more and more that we are people who really need to be changed from the inside out. And so one of the questions we come with this text, to this text this morning is with this one, what is it that's going to be able to accomplish that? What's going to be able to bring real change in our life? We're going to see that Paul gets us there as he talks about uh, a couple different things. He talks about the law, the old covenant, the old system under which God had his people. And he talks about the new covenant that he creates in Jesus. And so we're going to get into uh, you know, some of the details as he navigates that. But, but here's what, we're, what he's trying to show us and what we're going to see this morning. Three things. First, we're going to see the glory of the law, the glory of the old covenant. Secondly, the greater glory of the gospel, of the new covenant. And then finally, we're going to see how that glory is the glory that we need for real change in our lives. So first, the glory of the old covenant. These uh, challengers that I, miss, that I mentioned, these folks that are, are uh, speaking against Paul, that are saying, no, 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 he's got, he's got the gospel wrong and we're the ones who've got it right. They're the type of people that he's come across in, in many different cities. And they seem to be some variety of what in New Testament are called Judaizers. Those who at some level are accepting Jesus, they would say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. But they would say that Jesus, in one sense, uh, you know, since he completes what God has begun in the Old Testament, then in order to really know God, you must first become a religiously observant Jew with uh, Jesus on, on top of that, that God's Old Testament law continues to have uh, weight and continues to be a requirement that must be perfectly fulfilled for God's New Testament people. They're talking about this covenant, and, and Paul uses the term covenant here in a minute, but this covenant that God has made with his people. A covenant is a promise, a promise but more so. In some ways, uh, it's maybe most analogous to what we'd consider a legal contract, where uh, there are stipulations that must be met and there are things that are promised that will be done. But it's even more than the legal, it's, it's also moral and it's spiritual. The, the covenant, the old covenant of the Bible was God's promise to make 
uh, Abraham and his descendants be his people, that God would now have a special relationship with them, that he would call them out of darkness into light, that he would shower his blessings on them, and that they were to behave and be and act as his covenant, as his promised people. It begins in Abraham, but it finds its fullest expression in Moses, whom Paul mentions here. Remember Moses is he leads God's people out of Egypt and as he is the one who receives God's law, his covenant written in stone on Mount Sinai. Moses who comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments engraved in stone. You'll see Paul here mentioning you know, this law that was engraved on tablets of stone. He said that, uh, and it, it says, Paul tells us here that this old covenant that he refers to, verse 7, he says it came with glory. What God has done in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament came with glory. It had majesty. It had power. The word glory has to do with the weightiness. That it was something that was of God and powerful. But look at the words that Paul uses to describe this covenant of glory. Verse 6, he talks about the letter of this covenant which kills. In verse 7, he speaks of it as the ministry of death. Verse 9, the ministry of condemnation. Verse 15, he speaks about those under the Old Covenant having a veil over their eyes so that they cannot see who Christ really is. Verses 11 and 13 speaks of Moses on the, on coming down from the mountain as his, his face, every time he came in the presence of God, his face would begin to glow with the power of God and he would cover his face with a veil so that he didn't scare the people of God. That it had that much glory to it. See, the old covenant, this old promise of God's, had glory. But you see these, these words that he used described it. You know, ministry of death and ministry of condemnation. What's, what's going on? See, in the Old Testament law, God revealed His will for His people in laws and stipulations. But, but even more than that, those, those laws spring from the very character of God. They are a revelation of, of who God Himself really is. Let, let me give you a couple examples just from the, from the Ten Commandments. Uh, just take those. When, when uh, we read in the Ten Commandments, you shall not lie. Why does God tell His people not to lie? To bear false witness. Because God, our God, is a God of truth. Who always speaks the truth. Who always defends the truth. Who is trustworthy. And so he calls his people to be trustworthy and truth speakers as well. Why does uh, the, the law tells us, uh, thou shalt not murder? How does that reflect the character of God? God is not one who is uh, whimsical with life. He is not one who would bring extinction and undeserved death at a whim. He is a God who values and upholds the very uh, importance and sanctity of life. Because as we've said many times elsewhere, we were never meant to die. When it says that um, we are not to commit adultery, it reflects the very character of God because God is a God who is faithful to His people, who never abandons us, who never turns away from us for one that would be more pleasing to His eyes. God is faithful. You see, the, the law has glory because it shows us what He is like and it calls us to be like God ourselves. And yet Paul would say there's something wrong with this covenant. Not because of what it shows us about God, not because of what it tells us about how we are to be. 
The old covenant, and he's going to make a distinction here with the new covenant that comes. The old covenant came with the reality of who God is and how we are to be, but it came without the power to really turn us into the kind of people that could fulfill the law. It came without the power to actually turn us into people who really do have honest hearts and really are faithful through and through. Let me put it this way. Um, Maybe there's a simple way for us to put it. Knowing the right thing to do is not enough. It's not enough for us simply to know what we are to do. And if you have children, you've experienced this often maybe. And I've said foolish things like this to my wife. When I will say to my kids something simple like, okay, here's what I want you to do. One thing, you with me? You're going to turn around, you're going to go back to your room, and you're going to pick up all your Legos. And then I'm going to come check in your room, and they'll all be up. And so a little while later, I go back to their room, and they're, uh, you, you know, if, if I'm lucky, you know, everybody's still fully clothed, and, you know, they haven't, you know, they're not running out in the front yard. What, what have they not done? They, they haven't, you got to have toddlers to really know how that goes. They have not, they haven't cleaned their Legos. And I look at them and I'm like, I asked you to do one thing. And I turn to my wife and say something like this. Like, I, I told, what is so hard? I told them to clean up their Legos. Why can't they just clean up their Legos? And it's, it's foolish because the truth is, how many things do I know that I am to do and I simply don't do? You know, how hard is it uh, to come home at the end of the day and think, you know, my, my wife has been on with the kids all day, so my job is I'm going to step in here and I'm going to help reduce instead of increase chaos for her. And it just doesn't always go that way. I, I know what I'm supposed to do, and sometimes it just doesn't turn out that way. You know, Paul's point is that the law brings death because it tells us of who we are supposed to be, but it doesn't give us the very power to be that. Have you not found the law to be death for you as well. You know, we mentioned that the law speaks of the character of God. Well, Jesus significantly upped the ante on even the Ten Commandments in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And he knows that his audience is ticking off most of them. Well, I haven't done that. I'm good. And he says, no, you don't understand. If, If you have hated your brother in your heart, then you have committed murder in your heart. He looks at him and says, you've heard it said, thou shall not commit adultery. But he says, I'm here to tell you that if you, have, uh, if you have lusted after someone in your heart, then you have committed adultery in your heart. You see, suddenly the stakes are much, much higher. Because you see, when Jesus comes and gives us this, these words, we, you know, we see that the, the commandment actually as good as it is, brings death to us. Now, how do we respond to that? Usually we go in one direction or the other because it creates this tension in us. Here is the clear standard, and here we clearly do not live up to it. So, uh, in general, we tend to swing to one end or the other of this. Uh, Maybe we uh, evade this by using despair. We look at this, we see what Jesus commands, we see we don't have the power for it, and our, uh, our, our... Uh, end of the day sort of statement is, well, I will simply never live up to this. Nobody can live up to that kind of standard. Sure, it's one thing to say don't kill, but never actually harbor hate in my life. No one can do that. No one can. Certainly not me. You run towards despair as an an evasion. 
Or maybe you go in the other way, just simply of denial. You know, well, that's uh, good and admirable. Jesus says, don't hate anyone in your heart. I don't hate anyone in my heart. I don't hate them. I don't particularly like them, but I don't hate them. You know, this person isn't my favorite, but I I wouldn't call it hate. Uh, Just because uh, my blood pressure rises when I see them, and just because I've talked to all my best friends about how much that person has wronged me doesn't mean that I hate them. You know, or just because I let my mind wander sometimes when I see an attractive person, it doesn't mean that I'm lusting after them. I just appreciate beauty when I see it. Or it's only a glance, or it's only a picture, or no one is getting hurt when I look in the privacy of my own room or my own dorm room or wherever it might be. But you see, those are evasions, whether it's denial or despair. The law tells us what is required, but it does not give us the power to live up to it. Let me give you another example. When I was in high school, I ran track. And the race that I most often ran was uh, the 800 meters. It's, it's two laps around the track, and it's a, it's a grueling race. Um, and he, here's pretty much the strategy, at least for a high school runner as I was when you run 800. You, you know what you're supposed to do. You, you, the, the gun goes off, and you try to run a very fast first lap. And then when you complete that first lap and start into the second lap, you try to run an even faster second lap. Like, that's about where it goes uh, for strategy. Now, I've had the experience of I I run that fast first lap, uh, and then suddenly someone is, you know, strapping lead weights onto my my legs. And, And maybe you've been in a race and felt this way. I know what I need to do. I need to run a fast second lap, and it's just not happening. Uh, you get through about three quarters of that second lap and you're coming around to the straightaway and you, you see these people right next to you pulling beside you and then, and then leaving you in, in their wake and you think, I know what I need to do now. I need to catch up to that person. And your body simply can't do it. It's not that you don't know what you need to do. You need to run faster, but that you can't. And that's a picture of what the law does for us. It shows us a picture of who we are to be. And that's a reflection of who God is, but it doesn't give us the power to finish the race. But Paul says this old covenant came with glory. He goes on to say, though, that there is greater glory. That there is a new covenant. There is a gospel, a good news now, that is greater glory than the old. He says in verse 6, when he says that he is a minister of the new covenant, of the new promise, of the newer work that God is doing among his people in the person of Jesus. When he uses those words, new covenant, he's, he's echoing Jesus' words when he gave us the Lord's Supper. Remember when Jesus, after he broke the bread, when he took the cup, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. See, what Jesus was saying was, I'm going to shed my blood for you. And in doing that, in shedding my blood for you, in giving my life for you, I am establishing a new covenant, a new thing that God is doing. Not that the old covenant didn't accurately show us who God was, but Jesus says, in my death, in my sacrifice, I am giving you what the old covenant could not give you. I am giving you a perfect record. I am giving you the very forgiveness 
for your failures that you have so desperately needed under the first covenant. I'm giving you this so that when the Father looks at you, He will see not your imperfect record. He will see my perfect record. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul speaks of this as uh, the ministry of righteousness in verse 9. Notice how he speaks about the old covenant being the covenant of uh, condemnation, but the new covenant is a covenant of righteousness. Now, the Greek word here for righteousness is related to the word that we get sometimes in the Bible for justification. It has to do here with the forgiveness that God gives us. He says the old covenant was a covenant of condemnation. This new covenant is a covenant of righteousness, of being made right with God, of being forgiven by Him. This new covenant does what the old covenant couldn't do. It brings us home to God. He says this new covenant is one of righteousness. In verse 11, he goes on, he says it is permanent. He says the old covenant is passing away because Christ has now come. This new covenant is permanent. There is no new, newer covenant to come. The decisive thing in our history has been done in Jesus. We are not waiting for a new covenant. We are waiting for Christ to return. The ultimate final fulfillment of this covenant that he has given us in his life, death, and resurrection. It is permanent. But he goes on more and says this. It is not only that. It is a covenant that is, that is written on our hearts. Remember said, we, that we said in the old covenant that we did not have the power to obey as God meant for us to obey. The Old Testament prophets put their, very, their fingers on this very problem as they looked at the condition of God's people and what was needed in the future for God to do. It's mentioned in uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Let me read from Ezekiel chapter 36. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You hear what he says. He said there was a day coming when there would be a new covenant, when hearts would be changed, when stone hearts would be exchanged for hearts that are made out of flesh, hearts that really beat, that really are alive, that really are finally alive to God. And he says this glory is more glorious than the old covenant. He spoke of Moses, remember, whose face glowed with the very presence of God. But he said that he had to be veiled because that glory was passing, because a greater glory was coming. That's what Paul says. He says this surpassing glory, this new covenant, is more glorious than the old. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. You remember, uh, some of you will remember the experience I had as a kid growing up uh, as a Cub Scout, any other Cub Scouts, or some other uh, maybe occasion as a kid where you went camping with other kids. And you, you know that when, when you are 10 and you go camping with your friends, there is no darkness as dark as the darkness of the woods when, when you were 10 years old. And so on the camping trip with your other Cub Scout buddies, when it starts to get dark, you go to your tent and... and you rummage through your backpack to get your flashlight. And I and most of the other Cub Scouts, we, ha we had sort of the standard issue $2 plastic flashlight. You know, they come in green, red, and yellow. And those are your choices. And when, you know, it's like 1D battery. And so when the lights all go out and you turn that on, if you're, if you're lucky, you can sort of see your feet when you're shining down directly at it. Uh, it, it. It gives you enough light that you can sort of bumble through the woods. Now, compared to the very dark night, that light matters. It, you're thankful for that light. But then there's always that kid. And honestly, it's that kid who has that dad. And... 
that kid and that dad, they go into their tent and they get their, into their extra big duffel bag and they bring out the flashlight, you know, the one that takes two people to carry. And it's like hooked up to a car battery. And so we've all got our little flashlights and they bring this thing out and they flip that on and you, you know, there are roosters crowing out there because they think that the sun has arisen. Uh, it's that flashlight and you suddenly realize your little flashlight had light but it has been surpassed by something so much brighter. And in the words of Paul, something so much more glorious. You see, that's what he's saying when Christ has come and brought this new covenant. The old covenant had glory. It shed light. But this one has glory that is unsurpassed. That that is the goodness of what happens when we see Christ come and what God is going to do and has done for us in all its fullness. And why is it so much more glorious? We talked about it, the fact that it's, that it's permanent, that it brings change, that it, uh, that it actually brings a heart that beats. Well, Paul finally comes to uh, uh, one particular aspect of it that is throughout his passage here, and he puts his finger on what is uh, the real dynamic of change here. He says that this, that this covenant comes to us empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, in our verses here, he mentions the Holy Spirit seven times. He speaks about the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and brings this covenant home for us. He is the one who comes and implants it in our lives. He is the one who comes and unites us, knits us to Jesus so that we might be beneficiaries of what he's done. He says that when we as believers have the Holy Spirit, we are new people. There is now a force... Not the force, a force, a person, the very power of God at work in us that was never there before. And now everything is different. He says in verse 6 that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. He says that in verses 7 and 8 that, the, uh, that there was a ministry of death, but the ministry of the Spirit is what brings life. Verses 17 and 18, he speaks about the Lord who is the Spirit. Verse 17, the Spirit of the Lord. You see, for Paul, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are uh, as closely identified as possible. They are separate members of the Trinity, but it is the Spirit who brings the power of Christ and the presence of Christ to us. That's what Jesus told his disciples and. Uh, John, as he prayed and for them and spoke to them the night before he died, he said, I must go so that I can send to you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who is going to come. And it's better for you that I go and that the Holy Spirit come. That there is something, the Holy Spirit, an intimacy of Jesus' presence that the Spirit was going to bring that was even more vital to us than for the disciples having Jesus in the flesh. The Spirit has been poured out on us. And look at what he says about what the Spirit does for us. Verse 17. It says this very telling line. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says that the Spirit put into our life brings freedom. A new kind of freedom that we had not known before. He said that uh, until Christ comes and lifts the veil for us to use Paul's words, then we are still in darkness. We do not see Jesus and His goodness. We might hear the commandment of God, but we do not see the provision for our sins and do not know the power to live in that covenant. But he says that comes to us from the Spirit who is and brings freedom. 
And that brings us to our last point, that we have this old covenant that had glory, this new covenant that has even more and surpassing glory. And that in that covenant, we receive the Spirit who is the one who is, who is able to work real change in us. And we see that in verse 18 at the end of our chapter. As he says, the veil has been taken off our eyes. He says, we, will, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Listen to what he says. He says, we are being transformed into this image from one degree of glory to another. Now Paul goes on in... uh, Chapter 4 in verse 4 and verse 6, let me just summarize. He says this, Jesus is the true image of God. He is the one who so accurately shows us who God is. And it is Jesus that works by His Spirit this real transformation in us. When he says that it is by the Spirit that we are able to see Him with unveiled faces, we are being transformed. What he is saying, it is as we look at Jesus... As our gaze is fixed on Him, as our attention is riveted on Him, that we experience this work of being transformed. Now that is true when someone first comes to faith in Christ. When the veil is first lifted. When someone first sees, this isn't just a bunch of good stories in this old book, the Bible. Jesus really is who He said He is. He really did die for me and rise from the dead for the forgiveness of sins and my sins. It really is true, and not only true out there, it's true for me. When the penny drops, a person is transformed as they look at Jesus. But you see here, he says that we are being transformed. The transformation does not stop there. That picture of Jesus that brings that change is the very picture of Jesus, the very fixing of our eyes on Jesus that we need every day after that as well. You see what he's saying is, it is that continual looking at Jesus that does the work of ongoing change in our lives, what the Bible calls sanctification. That coming to see him for the first time brings us into God's family, but what does God do then? He makes us more and more to live out the life of real children of His. He does it by transforming us as we look at Jesus. Because, you know, we go where our gaze is fixed. And if you've ever ridden a bike, you know this is true. Like you're riding a bike, you're right in your lane, you're looking straight ahead and everything's going fine, and something distracts you over to the side and you look over. And if you keep looking, what happens? Your bike is going to drift over in that direction. It's what happened to one of my children the other day, and he ended up upside down in a ditch because he's fine. Because when you take your eyes off the road, when you look away and look at something else, the rest of you will follow. And it's true in our spiritual lives as well. Paul's telling us here that we are transformed as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we look to Him, the One who has come to bring us salvation, the One who gives us the power and transformation we desperately need, even right now, that we have to look at, gaze at, fix our eyes on Him. Now, how do we do that? How do we look to the Lord? How do we look to Him that we might know this transformation in our lives? Well, two things. We need to see Jesus for who He is. 
And we need to see Jesus for who he is for us. Put differently, you need to see who Jesus is. And you need to see who Jesus is for you. We've already spoken of this new covenant that has come that tells us about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We must see who he is, that he is the risen Lord, that he is the one the only one who can come and forgive us of our sins and transform us and change us. We must see who he is, but we also need to see who he is for us. That he didn't just do that out there, but he has done it for you and can do it for you and will continue this work of transformation. And maybe we need to learn how to see it in the specific areas of life. Let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, maybe, you've, maybe it comes to your attention every once in a while that you are an impatient person. It's a hard word to say slowly. Impatient person. Uh, We were driving down the road yesterday. Somebody pulled over. It is in our neighborhood. Somebody sort of stops in their lane right in front of me for no discernible reason. Instead of just like pulling around him, I start to have this conversation of why this person has stopped and won't go. And my wife turns to me and says, why are you being so impatient? I so patiently respond, I'm always impatient. Why wouldn't I be impatient now? (laughs) One of my finer moments. Uh, How does the gospel really bring ongoing transformation in something as simple as that, in in our impatience? And that's a trivial example, but we all know how deep our impatience runs and how much that can really get us in trouble. Well, maybe it begins with this as we learn to see Jesus and who he is and who he is for us. When you stop and think, okay, what would it mean to look at Jesus now? Jesus, who is the patient one. Jesus, who came and endured a life on earth that he did not have to take on in order to come rescue people like me that he did not have to come rescue. Jesus, who was patient lifelong and who was patient in the midst of being misunderstood and patient in the midst of being mocked and rejected and crucified. Jesus was very clear He could have called down a legion of angels. He could have stopped it right in the middle, but he didn't. He was patient for me. And as you start to get that picture of Jesus, to have that moment to be able to look at that person in front of you who is sending you not to a cross, but who is delaying your day for 45 seconds. And you start to see the overwhelming patience of Jesus with you. You start to see how hard it is to be impatient with someone else as well. And it works slowly and gradually as we fix our eyes on Jesus. Maybe you find yourself in the middle of a lust or an addiction of some kind. And there may be many things that are, need to be brought to bear here, but one of these is simply this. That thing that has so captured your mind or your heart or your behavior. What is it that you are looking to that for? For that comfort. For that assurance that life is going to be okay. For that distraction, at least for the moment, from the difficulty and suffering of your life. You begin to look at that thing and say, is this really going to do what it takes to free my heart? If I give in to this thing one more time, is it really going to finally deliver me? Or will I be right back here again tomorrow or sooner? And you start to fix your eyes on Jesus who came that he might really deliver us from what has captured our souls. 
That he might really, through his spirit, as it says here, bring us real freedom. That Jesus, the Lord who has died for us, wants us to be set free from everything that would come and ensnare us and rob us of life and destroy us. And he's come to do that very good work. And he's given his life so that we might have life, not from the thing for which we grasp, but we might have life from him. And as you begin to have that conversation with yourself, and your eyes begin to turn away from the thing that has you in its grip and turn again to Jesus, the one who has you in, your, in his grip, then that is one very important key of what God does to break us of those things, to call us home again, to, in the words of Paul, to transform us as we are being transformed. And it very rarely happens in an instant. But God is very patient, and He is doing this in us over a lifetime. See, we have to see who Jesus is and that He is that for us. And we find Him in the pages of Scripture where we read of Christ and what He has done for us. When we come to Scripture, we come and find Jesus proclaimed to us. When we come to God in prayer, we come in the power of Jesus looking to God to change our life, to be the one who is the source and satisfier of everything that we need. When we come to Him in prayer, we are looking to Him and fixing our eyes on Jesus. When we have a friend who knows Jesus come put his or her arm around us to bring us the encouragement so that we so desperately need. When we have somebody who comes and brings rebuke in our life where needed. When we have gone off the rails and comes again and holds the beauty of Jesus in front of our eyes, that is God using them too to bring our eyes back to Jesus. When we come and celebrate the Lord's Supper, the sacraments that God has given us, it is another means by which God pours out His grace on us and shows us the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus for us. How are we going to change? We're only going to change through the power of the Spirit who is brought to us in this new covenant. And let me just leave us with this question, or these questions. Is that kind of change happening in your life, slow as it might be? Are you seeing Christ? Are you experiencing this kind of real change? As the years go by, are you becoming more patient and more merciful towards the failings of others or less so? Are you becoming more generous with your time, your money, your gifts or less so? As a parent, are you becoming more dependent on prayer and more wise and more resilient in your parenting or are you becoming more and more frustrated with your kids and angry at the ways they are, in, uh, they are inconveniencing your life? Husbands, as the years of your marriage go by, are you becoming more and more sensitive to the needs of your wife? Are you becoming more tender, more curious about what makes her tick, more eager to encourage her and love her and help her to flourish and become the woman God's making her into? Are you becoming more that? Or less. Wives, as the years go by, are you becoming more and more respectful of your husband? More considerate of his needs, more prayerful for his good, more eager to be a strong friend and ally, more trusting of God in your marriage, or are you less so? See, Paul wants to remind us again that Christ is sufficient for us. 
He brings all that we need. And as He comes and brings this new covenant, He comes and brings all that we need that we might really change. And as you hear that list, and as I hear that, and one or two of those rings a bell for you, or you know there are others that I could have read that would, will we look again to Christ, who is our salvation. The one who comes and brings us forgiveness in the midst of these very failings. And the one who comes to bring the power that we might really change as we gaze at Him. You see, because Christ has come, and because He has given our, us His Spirit, we can be people of real hope. You see, God is in this. He is in your life. He is committed to your change. He is there inside of you. And is the one, in fact, that even as you hear a list like that, that is ringing the bell saying, here is something that we need to talk about. That is the work of the Spirit. He comes not to condemn, but to bring life as He drives us to Jesus. Let me close with this. As we see here you know, this, this glory of the old covenant, the gr greater glory of the new, and how that brings power for us to change. Let me close with uh, this short poem by John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings. Let's pray.